and welcome to That Movie Sounds Gay, a podcast all about movies that are kinda gay. Or maybe they're not, but they probably are, at least a little. Yes, this podcast is generally not going to be looking at movies that are explicitly gay. Instead, its focus will be more on movies that have a homoerotic undercurrent to them, whether intentional or not. Or sometimes for movies that are just interesting to discuss from a gay point of view. I'll be looking at old movies, new movies, animated movies, live-action movies, good movies and kind of bad movies. Action, horror, comedy, romance, you name it. But one thing they all have in common is they sound gay. On this episode of That Movie Sounds Gay, we'll be discussing the 1959 religious epic Ben-Hur. Directed by William Wyler, the film starred Charlton Heston as Judah Ben-Hur, Jack Hawkins as Quintus Arias and Stephen Boyd as Masala. The film had unprecedented success upon its release, being the highest grossing film of 1959 and winning 11 Academy Awards. It also had an additional $14.7 million marketing campaign. Wyler kept a six-day work week over the nine-month shoot, with filming often going up to 16 hours a day. The film's most famous scene is its chariot race, which took several weeks to shoot and utilised 15,000 extras. It is still considered one of the most famous action scenes of all time. The film was based off of the 1880 book Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ by Lou Wallace, which was already an extremely influential and popular book, particularly in religious circles. It had been adapted into film two times previously during the silent era. With all this said, it might seem like this 1959 film is not an obvious one to contain significant gay subtext. However, it's something that has been discussed for some time now, particularly in regard to the relationship between the title character and his former friend turned enemy Masala. In this episode, of course, I will be looking at that, but I also want to look at some other things as well. I think there are aspects of this movie that have some gay appeal besides the Judah-Masala relationship. Then there are off-screen aspects that I think are just as interesting, such as the disputed claim of the subtext being intentional, and how the film was received both at the time and in more recent years. But before I get into that, I will first quickly go over the basics of the plot just so we're all on the same page. However, as Ben-Hur is a film that runs nearly four hours long, I hope you'll forgive me if I leave out certain details and instead focus more on aspects that are of more importance to this episode. As always, this will contain spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie, I would recommend watching that first and then coming back in about four hours or so. The film opens with a depiction of the three wise men seeing a star in the sky that guides them towards Bethlehem, where they visit the baby Jesus and offer gifts to him. Several years later, a Roman commander named Masala returns to his hometown of Jerusalem. However, he has returned to work directly under the Roman governor of Jerusalem. It's not just a pleasant return home. He is immediately characterised as being a very ambitious man, someone who has dreamed of holding military power and political authority since he was a child, and he now feels like he is on his way to getting it. We are next introduced to Judah Ben-Hur, who is a wealthy Jewish prince living in Jerusalem. He's well-liked and very religious. He quickly falls in love with the daughter of one of his servants, but as she's already betrothed, the pair don't act near a mutual attraction. Since they are childhood friends, Masala meets with Judah in the hopes of convincing him to help him get the people inside and to stop resisting and rebelling against the Roman presence in their city. The pair clearly have different viewpoints when it comes to this. Masala basically tells Judah that it's her own world and in order to survive it, you have to assimilate and that's just how things are. He doesn't share Judah's religion and he thinks that his old friend's devotion to it and his fellow Jews is foolish and standing in the way of natural progress. 
If there was a way of life that was predestined to rise and spread through the world, it's the Roman way of life. The pair end up parting in anger. Shortly after this, the new governor arrives in Jerusalem, and although the people are not happy with this, they've been intimidated into not causing a scene as he makes his way through the city. Among those watching it are Judah and his family, but unfortunately his sister knocks some tails off of the ledge of the roof, and these come loose and knock the governor off his horse, badly injuring him. Quickly, Roman soldiers force their way into the house, and despite Judah insisting that it was an accident, an accident that he was responsible for, everyone is arrested. Masala investigates the rooftop and sees that the tiles were indeed loose, but he chooses not to say anything that could clear his former friend and his family. Without so much as a trial, Judah is sentenced to go to the galleys as a slave, and even after breaking from his prison cell to confront Masala, he is unable to find out any information about what happened to his family. He swears that one day he will return and will have vengeance upon him. To be taken to his fate, but he and the other prisoners are marched through unforgiving terrain over several days, with many collapsing. They stop for water for their horses and the soldiers, but the villagers take pity on the prisoners too and try to give them water. However, Judah is prevented from getting some and he collapses in despair and exhaustion. A figure, seen only from behind, kneels down and gives him water, despite warnings from the soldiers. For three years, Judah remains a galley slave, currently imprisoned in the bills of the flagship of the Roman consul Quintus Arius. Arius notices something special in Judah, and has interest in making him a gladiator, but Judah refuses his offer. Nevertheless, Arius remains interested, and unlike the other slaves, he doesn't chain him to the ship before we go into battle. And this allows Judah to escape the naval battle that causes the rest of the fleet to be destroyed. In the wreckage, Judah finds that Arius has also survived, and the two are rescued by a Roman ship. Arius is grateful that Judah saved his life, and he persuades the emperor to pardon Judah from his previous conviction and allow him to work under him. Years later, Judah is now a successful chariot racer and Arius formally adopts him as his son since his own son died several years ago. Judah accepts the newborn but he hasn't forgotten his mother and sister or what Masala did to them. So, with Arius's blessing, he begins his way back to Jerusalem for revenge. On his way back, he encounters one of the three wise men from earlier, Balthazar, and an Arab sheikh who loves horses and chariot racing called Ibrahim. Balthazar tries to discourage his revenge from a religious perspective, whereas Ibrahim encourages him to become one of his chariot racers, promising him a chance to get his revenge on Masala if he does. Masala has also taken up chariot racing and is infamous in the field. Judah initially refuses the offer, but upon reaching Jerusalem and reuniting with Esther and her father, he is told by her that his family have died in prison. This motivates him to take the sheikh up on his offer as he becomes even more determined to get his revenge on Masala. However, in truth, his family are alive but with contracted leprosy, and they are now living outside the city among the other lepers. They have begged Esther not to tell Judah of their condition, believing it is better if he doesn't see them this way. The chariot race arrives, and after much spectacle and pounding hooves, Judah is finally victorious. And what's more, Masala, in an attempt to damage Judah's chariot with the blades of his own, ends up falling from his, being horribly trampled. He survives, but he's in horrible condition. He needs immediate treatment if he has any chance of surviving, but he refuses until he sees Judah. Despite the doctor's insistence that they proceed, Judah arrives just in time and Masala is able to have his last hateful conversation with his former friend. After some urging, he also reveals to Judah that his mother and sister are alive as well, but he must look for them in the Valley of Lepers. The film ends with Judah and Esther reuniting with his mother and sister and taking them home from the leper colony. 
As this is happening, the trial of Jesus is taking place and when Judah sees him, he recognises him as the man who gave him water all those years ago in the desert. He witnesses the crucifixion and after a great rainfall, he returns home to see Esther waiting for him and his mother and sister miraculously cured. Sorry if that was a little long, I tried to make it as brief as I could but without leaving out important elements of the story. Since although it's not all directly relevant to a gay subtext, I do think it's important to get a good picture of a thumb as a whole in order to better understand where it fits into it. Anyway, firstly, I would like to start with the relationship between Judah and Masala. This seems to be the most commonly discussed aspect of the film where gay subtext is concerned, and while the discussion may have developed on its own without any particular encouragement from those involved in the actual filmmaking, Ben-Hur is interesting in that one of the potential screenwriters, Gore Vidal, claimed this was something he intended to have present in the movie, albeit implicitly. In the 1995 documentary The Celluloid Closet, Vidal said he came up with an idea that the strongest and most believable motivation for Masala's turn from friendship to hatred towards Judah, which happens very quickly and very severely despite their apparent long history together, would be if in the past they had been lovers. Therefore, when Masala returns and he still feels this attraction towards Judah, but doesn't appear to be reciprocated, and what's more, their worldviews have grown so far apart, this bonds his feelings of animosity. Fidel claims he brought this up to William Wyler, who agreed that this could be brought up privately to Stephen Boyd as an off-screen motivator for Masala's character. However, it would be best if Charlton Heston was kept unaware due to his general conservatism. It also wouldn't directly be mentioned in the film, for obvious 1959 reasons. These statements seem to have been taken at face value by many modern critics and journalists and even caused some controversy and criticism towards the 2016 remake that this was not present in their version of the story. In a way, this reaction is understandable since you'd think in the 2016 film, Judah and Masala overtly presented his former lovers as at least possible, compared to in 1959. However, while I don't particularly want to go out my way to defend this version of the film, I watched it a few years ago and I found it very, very unmemorable. I also don't think this particular criticism is entirely fair, since it assumes that Masala and Judah being former lovers is something that was canonically intended. And if it wasn't for the censorship and general attitude of the times, this would have been shown on screen. The fact that Wyler claimed to have no recollection of his conversation with Vidal when he was asked about it may be a reason to doubt it happened at all, but even if we accept that it did happen, I think more importantly, it's unclear to what extent Vidal's contributions were present in the final script, and therefore what impact his suggestion would even have had. The screenplay is formally credited to Carl Thunberg, however several drafts or at least partial drafts were written after his initial screenplay, including by Gore Vidal and various cast and crew members seem to have varying opinions on which writers deserve what credit. Although, despite not being wholly convinced that the gay subtext that remained in the final version was intentional from the start, I'm not going to act as if what we were left with isn't worth mentioning, regardless of what the authorial intent might have been. The two parts I find particularly interesting in this regard are Judah and Masala's reunion and Masala's death scene. The reunion has more than a couple of lines that are suggestive of an intimacy that could go past platonic friendship, such as a remark, we're still close, to which the response is, in every way, and the response to that is, I hope so. Masala even remarks that there's nothing so sad as unrequited love, which he says in reference to the people of Jerusalem and Rome's relationship, 
but could easily be seen as a sort of parallel to themselves. In contrast, Judah and Esther's scenes together, particularly the one where they are first alone together and apparently fall in love, they seem very reserved, and although this can be attributed to them playing to people who are holding themselves back from letting their feelings take over, to me this just comes across as pretty stilted. Not to mention the way Judah is staring at her intensely, but not exactly lovingly, it's a little unsettling, frankly. Masala's death scene is probably one of the scenes I think is strongest in the movie, at least as far as character interactions go. I think it does a good job of portraying someone who's been completely consumed by hatred with the image of his horribly injured body, providing a good visual representation of the state of his soul. In this, there's no trace of the nostalgic fondness the two have for each other like there is in the first scene. However, it still explicitly shows Misal and Judah's journeys are tied together. Misal doesn't allow the doctor to potentially save his life, because he'd rather die than miss his chance to have the confrontation with his foe. The culmination of the two characters' battle together is more important than whether or not Masala lives or dies. So even if this scene is more concerned with hate as opposed to love, whether that love is platonic or romantic or any other form, to me it does show an intense bond between the two men. Although I said I don't think it was exactly fair to criticise the 2016 version for not containing a romantic subplot between them, since it's unclear how much that can be considered a canonical part of the 1959 film, I do think moments like this show there's a potential there. Like, if another film wanted to do a rare version of Ben-Hur and build upon the subtext and make it text, I wouldn't think they just pulled it out of thin air. I mentioned at the start of this episode that I wanted to discuss some of the other aspects of the film that I think gives it a certain gay appeal, and while I think these might seem minor compared to Judah and Masala's relationship, I think they're still worth noting because to me they provide the film with an environment or an atmosphere that is quite an interesting contrast to what you might expect when going into a 1959 religious film. One of the things that is quite easy to spot from the get-go is that the vast majority of the characters are men. Not just the main players, but those in the background and those in crowds as well. There is quite a lot of skin on display as well, particularly during the middle portion of the story. Then, there's the emotional characterisation of Judah himself. Although Judah begins the film as being generally quite gentle and non-violent, and he ends with the audience understanding that he will take on Jesus' teachings of love and forgiveness, now that he has seen what the end result of hatefulness is, for the majority of the 3 hours and 45 minute runtime, Judah is motivated by a thirst for revenge. His body undergoes harsh treatment and suffering, but he survives because he wants this revenge. His passion for it makes Judah a more interesting character, at least to me, than he was at the start and also at the end. And although I don't find Charlton Heston particularly attractive in general, it is hard not to feel like the camera is inviting us to, especially when there are scenes like him stretched out, all sweaty in the sun, pouring some water over his face as he sighs. With the majority of the film focusing on men, among other men, about a man who wants to get revenge on another man, it gives the film a very masculine feel, for lack of a better word. However, it's a religious film too, and it's obviously concerned with showing this world from a Judeo-Christian point of view. But I find it interesting how much of it seems to revel in the pagan spectacles of the ancient world as well. For example, the chariot race, the grandness of the cities, etc. And then also there's the corporeal parts of life, the sweatiness and claustrophobia of a ship's galley, the danger and the thrill of the final bout between Judah and Misala. 
where her scenes are more obviously and more heavily focused on the Christian side of things, or I guess with spiritual side of things, particularly after the chariot race is finished. Jesus is shown to be crucified, and then there's a whole plot of Judah's mother and sister being lepers. But these parts seem like they haven't received as warm a reception, at least in modern times, compared to the more physical parts that I mentioned previously, and also compared to the relationship between Judah and Messala. There's kind of an interesting split actually, because when writing this episode I looked up some examples of the response Ben Hutter received around the time of its release, as well as more recently. Specifically critics who were coming at it from a religious point of view, in contrast with those who weren't, or at least who didn't bring their own religion up in their review. Those who were religious definitely seemed to pay more attention to the religious scenes in general, and they also seemed to generally praise the handling of it, the way Jesus is depicted, and how it shows personal encounters with Jesus can change a person's whole outlook on life and save them. Those who weren't religious seemed to focus more of their praise on the action, the spectacle, or we picked out the revenge storyline as one of the more interesting parts of the film. And of course, there were some who were pretty wholly negative as well, like John Pym saying it felt like a four-hour Sunday school lesson, or Dwight MacDonald saying it felt slow-paced and endless. When it comes to my own opinion of the film, I have to admit I have somewhat mixed feelings as well. I've seen it about three or four times now, and I generally enjoy it when I watch it. I have a particular interest in ancient Rome, and in general I like watching films set in that world, even if this is more concerned with Judeo-Christian matters than Roman ones. However, I also wouldn't say that I love the movie, it does feel very of its time, and not always in a good way. It does also sometimes have that sort of Sunday school feel to it at points, even if I don't think it's quite a four hour Sunday school lesson, maybe altogether it's more like a one and a half hour Sunday school lesson. Films such as Spartacus or Covadis are more up my street, particularly the former, and I'll be coming back to that film at some point in the future. But yeah, despite my somewhat mixed feelings, I think Ben-Hur is a film that is worth watching, at least if you like that sort of grand historical epic. It isn't something that really seems to be made very much now, at least not in Hollywood, and not without the aid of a lot of CGI special effects. Also, for gay audiences, I think it's interesting to watch to see how even a film that was so promoted and so lauded by religious circles so mainstream and widely watched, released in a society that explicitly condemned homosexuality, still contains aspects to it that can be seen as being, at least a little, gay. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed episode 4 of That Movie Sounds Gay. Because of this film's length and its scale, it was hard not to get sidetracked when writing this, since there are a lot of things that are interesting about its production and its history, besides the things that are more relevant to this podcast's primary subject matter. Over the next few days, I'll probably share some of these things on my Twitter, as well as some resources I found helpful when I was looking up things that were actually more relevant. If you are so inclined, let me know what your thoughts are on Ben-Hur. Do you think it's overrated, or do you think it's still got a lot to offer modern audiences? Also, how do you think it compares to other historical and religious epics that Hollywood put out during the 50s and 60s? And finally, when watching it, do you think that there really was something intended to be between Masala and Judah, or is this something the audience sees but not the film itself? Let me know. You can find me on Twitter where my username is ThatMovieSounds, or send me an email at ThatMovieSoundsGay at gmail.com. 
Don't forget to subscribe and join me next week for episode 5 where we'll be looking at a film by one of the directors that inspired me to start this podcast, Chang Chi, and his 1971 film The New One-Armed Swordsman.